Uh, on Thursday of this week, uh, most of us, probably all of us, found ourselves sitting before a table with more food than we knew what to do with. And, and looking back, we know what we did with it. We ate all of it, as much as we could fit in our stomachs. But I, I don't know about you, but I love Thanksgiving, right? Uh, food, family, friends, football, maybe even in that order, right? You add Jesus to that, and I feel like that's the description of heaven. I, I just love <laughs> Thanksgiving. It cannot get better than that, right? Uh, and of everything that happened this past week, uh, what was the centerpiece of the whole thing? It was a table, uh, a meal, sharing food and drink with each other. Right? Sure, there was more going on than just eating. There were people coming together. There was reconnecting with family and friends. There was conversation. There might have been laughter. There might have been joy. There might have been the giving of thanks. But all of it happened at or around a meal, a, a table. Meals are those really simple but profoundly important parts of life, right? Life so often happens around the table, happens around meals. And the Bible is not lost on the power or the significance or the importance or the simple yet profundity of meals, of breaking bread, of breaking bread and having fellowship, of eating together. The Bible's not lost on it. The Bible, in fact, highlights it. In fact, I want to suggest that you could probably trace the whole trajectory of the scriptures, the whole story of human history, through some meals. Through five meals, you're going to see the whole story, everything we know to be true and real, play out. Like when you open your Bible in Genesis chapter 1, in the very first verses, what do you find? You find a good God who has made a good creation of a good earth, and he's got this man named Adam and this woman named Eve. And in the first chapter, what do you find? This good God says to them, I have provided for you all manner of food. And in the Garden of Eden, you've got this feast, this banquet, this buffet for Adam and Eve to enjoy. And every meal they eat with one another and they eat in communion with God and everything is good. Their bellies are full. God is present at their meals at all times. He's the one walking in the cool of the day. They're sharing fellowship with Him. All of it begins gloriously and does so even with a meal. But then, just as it would begin good with a good meal, it would soon go bad with a bad one. Right? Because two chapters later, in Genesis 3, you have the first meal without God. And you know the story. Everything goes wrong from there. Eve is standing by a tree, her husband Adam standing with her, and the serpent comes and he talks about the fruit of the tree. It looks good to the eye, and they have their first meal. They devour the fruit, and the fruit there in turn devours them. And all of human history is thrown off the rails, and everything is plunged into depravity and ruin and rebellion and enmity with God at that meal that happens without God. But then as the story keeps going, you find that this God, who is good, does not just abandon or reject or deny his people, but rather the rest of the story is this God who's going to be on this pursuit to get them back to what he had in the beginning. The rest of the story is a story to get them back to a table again, where we can eat and drink with God. That's the rest of the story. The story is this God who's going to pursue man and 
chase man to redeem them and reconcile them and restore them back to himself, to enjoy what they did in Genesis 1. And so in the next book after Genesis, Exodus, you get another hugely significant meal. You get a meal called the Passover, one we'll talk about a little today. It's, it's a meal where God foreshadows the deliverance and redemption that he's going to work for his people. How he's going to spare them from judgment, pass over them, but visit them in mercy. And all of that is pointing to yet another meal. Because when you get to the Gospels, you keep reading in the story in Luke 22, the passage Brenda read for us that we'll look at today. Jesus sits, 12 of his followers with him, and he inaugurates a new meal and a new covenant at that meal. And he begins to show that he's come to fulfill everything that was shadowed in the Old Testament. God's redemption and reconciliation and restoration is now complete. And yet, even that isn't the last. That's not the final meal because that meal still shadows and points to yet one more. It's sort of like the whole thing goes beginning, middle, beginning. Like God is going to come and Jesus is going to make all things new and he's going to restore what we once had. And the final picture is this meal where we eat and drink forever with God in his kingdom at his table as it once was. The whole story can be summed through a sequence of meals. The Bible is not lost on the power of them. And, and today we're going to sort of briefly consider the last of those three meals. Today we're in Luke chapter 22. We're continuing with our series, Talks with Jesus. We've been listening to Jesus talk with various people throughout his life. And now, even as we enter the Advent season, remembering that he came, we're going to be simultaneously remembering why he came. We're celebrating the first hours, but also listening in on the last hours. And today we're Luke 22, a conversation that Jesus has with the twelve around the table. And it's a conversation they will never forget. And two millennia later, neither do we. Two thousand years later, we're still listening in on this conversation. And it's a conversation we literally will hear every single week that we gather here at Seven Mile Road. Let me just read for you the six <coughs> verses from 14 to 20 to remind ourselves what we're looking at. Luke 22, verses 14 to 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not eat the, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after he had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. All right, let's just pray for a moment, and then we'll listen in on this conversation together. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and ask you for help. Because apart from your spirit getting involved, these will be just print on a page. These will be just words in our ears. They will have no impact and very little meaning. But if your spirit will get involved, these words will become life to us. They will become food for our souls. You will cause 
through the hearing of the word, faith to rise up in our hearts, repentance, cutting away sin, causing us to believe in Jesus. That is what we long for, and we need Jesus, we need the Holy Spirit for that to happen. Come and be with my brothers and sisters as they sit under your word, that as they open it, you might open them, and that we might respond rightly to it. This is our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 14, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Sometimes when we hear Jesus' words, we sort of think he's like an actor on a stage, and he doesn't really mean what he says. There's something about us that doesn't really connect that he's both fully God and fully man. So we feel like he says a lot of stuff, but he's sort of disconnected from it. So next week, we're going to hear Jesus talk in the garden, and he's going to say, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. And we hear it, and it sort of goes over our head, because we don't feel like Jesus really could have been sorrowful to the point of death. Or here, we hear him say, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And we feel like, He's not earnestly desiring. This is sort of like an actor on the stage saying the lines he has to say. And because we don't fully get his humanity, the impact of these words and the longing of his heart is sort of lost on us. But just consider where Jesus is at in his timeline when he says these words to his disciples. In just a few hours, Judas would betray him and Peter would deny him. And all the ten would abandon him. And the Pharisees would interrogate him. And the Romans would torture him. And together all of them would crucify him. And the Father would turn his face away from him. And the sins of the world would be placed on him. And he would experience suffering and wrath and sin and separation and death and hell like none of us. And so you get why in his last hours he would say, earnestly I have desired to eat this meal with you before I suffer. Like if you knew tomorrow was it for you, I'd imagine you'd find yourself at something like this, sitting at a table, calling your family and friends together to share one more meal. These are the men he has invested his life in. This is the hope of the mission. And so he calls them and he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. And it's not just any meal he wants to share, it's one in particular. I earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So let me remind you or introduce you to the Passover. Right? For thousands of years, literally thousands of years, every year Jewish families would gather in their home on one night of the year, and all the family would come together and you'd have a husband or a father or a patriarch to sit at the head of the table, sort of the host to tell everyone what the meal was about. For thousands of years, Jewish families would come together on one night to remember the event of the Exodus. Right? The second book of the Bible tells us that God's people were in slavery in Egypt 400 years under the fist of Pharaoh. But then God hears their cry. God decides he's going to come down and save them. And so God lights up Egypt with ten plagues, the tenth being the worst. He's going to let the angel of death pass through the land, and he's going to strike down every firstborn. God's judgment and wrath is going to rest upon this sinful people. But there's just one problem. 
and that's that the angel of death will not be able to discriminate between Jews and Egyptians because it just sees sinners and it will wipe them all out. Right? So Israel is just as much in trouble as Egypt is when God will send the angel of death. It will not be able to discriminate because they're all sinful. They all deserve to die. And so when it seems like there's no hope, God provides a way. He provides a way of deliverance. He says to them, take a lamb, a young lamb with no spot, no blemish, with no defect, and slit its throat. And let its blood pour out. Stuff that would be so gruesome to us. Let its blood pour out, collect it in a bowl, and take that bowl and apply the blood on the door frames of your homes, on the posts. And when the angel of death comes through, it will see the blood on the door and it will pass over you. That's the meal, right? God's wrath will pass over and instead of wrath visiting your home, mercy will visit your home through the blood of this lamb. And so every year, a family would gather to remember that. To remember that through the blood of the lamb, they were spared. Right? As long as you sat under the protection of the blood, as long as the blood was applied to the doorposts and frames, you sat under its protection. You sat protected from the wrath of, the, of God. And then the family would take that lamb and they roast it and the command of that night was that they were to consume it together. So, so, so think of that. The picture is you have this family huddled together and they're sitting under the protection of the blood of the lamb poured out for them. And then they will take and eat and consume the body of the sacrifice given for them. Sitting under its blood, consuming the body that would point to their salvation and their deliverance. You can hardly consider the background without your minds racing forward to what this is pointing to, to the conversation Jesus has in Luke 22, reminding them that Jesus has come to usher and to bring a new Passover. In Luke 22, he sits with his disciples, he ushers in a new meal. It was the Passover, but he changes it forever. And he offers to us now what we call communion what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. So I want to talk for a few minutes about what Jesus does, what happens, what's offered to us at communion. What happens when we come to this table? Now before we do that, let's just admit that this is a little weird, right? Like if you've got a friend who you're trying to explain this to, who doesn't get a background in Christianity and church like you do, it's just a little bit odd that we do this. Right? It's like we call time out in the middle of our service so that we can have a small kitty snack. Right? We come and we take a little bit of bread and we take some wine or juice and we eat in the middle of our service. And through it, we're eating the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Right? You try and explain that to the common man walking on Roosevelt Boulevard in Philadelphia. It's just a bit odd, these sacraments, these ordinances that Jesus has given. We, we march people out when they've come to faith in Jesus. We, we'll take them to a lake and we'll dip them under the water and bring them out. Or, or every single week, in the middle of our service, we come to the table and take bread and wine. What is that? 
It's really simple. One pastor has explained it like this, and, and we get it, we just don't get this. It, it's sort of like this ring, right? On my left hand, fourth finger is a ring. It's not even worth $100, I know, because I bought it, right? Four years now, it's got scuffs and scratches and marks. You find this on the floor, and to any person, the best you can do is pawn it for 90 bucks. To me, this thing is priceless. Any of you that have this on the fourth finger of your left hand, you get the value and worth. Nobody else gets it, but you do. Why? Because in this simple thing, it's, it's 14 carat. It's, it's hardly worth anything. But in this, my whole life is pledged here. And another life is pledged to me here. Right? This ring represents the vows of my whole life and vows made to me. Everything about my life is sort of contained in that. And we get that, right? Anyone who's made that kind of covenant gets that. It's just a ring, but what it points to is so much deeper and so much weightier and so much heavier than just a few ounces of gold. And Jesus, week after week, invites people to this table to remind us of one who pledged his life to us, to death and beyond, and to whom we in turn have pledged our lives to. So then what happens when we come to communion? For one, Jesus offers himself at the table. When we come to the table, Jesus offers himself. Look at verse 19 and 20. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. All right, commentators who have looked at this Passover, pastors who have preached on it, have noticed that this is a highly unusual Passover. It's a very untraditional Passover. Because you've got almost everything that you'd expect at the meal. You've got the bread. Of course you had unleavened bread at Passover. You've got the wine. Of course you had cups of wine. Four of them during the Passover. But what's missing at the meal? The main course. The, the lamb is missing, right? And sure, we might be able to say that maybe it was assumed they ate it or that Luke just didn't give us that detail, but neither does Mark and neither does Matthew. And so as, as, as we read it, it seems like you've got these guys huddled together around the Passover meal and you've got the bread and you've got the wine, but there's no lamb on the table. And perhaps it's because Jesus was going to show them that there's no lamb on the table because the lamb was sitting at the table. Because Jesus is going to transform this meal forever and show to them that He is the sacrifice. Right? What does John the Baptist say when he sees Jesus in the beginning of John's Gospel? He looks at Him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus sits at this meal and what He says to His disciples is, I am now the sacrifice. And then, of course, it makes sense because Jesus takes some bread and he says, take, eat, this is my body given for you. 
Jesus saying, I am now the young, spotless lamb, without blemish, without defect, without sin, whose body would be broken for you. And it's now in consuming my body that you will be delivered, that you will be saved. At the meal, Jesus takes the wine and he says, take, drink, this is my blood poured out for you for the new covenant. Jesus says, even as in the Old Testament, they sat under the protection of the blood of the Lamb, so now in the new covenant, all whose hearts have been applied with the blood of the Lamb, and all whose souls have been applied with the blood of the Lamb, are now saved from God's wrath and God's judgment. This is my blood, my body broken and shed for you. Jesus is saying, now I am the sacrifice. He says, this is my blood given for the new covenant. Right? Jesus is inaugurating a new covenant at this meal. Whenever you find covenants in the Bible, covenant is those permanent relationships. Those permanent marriage-like relationships that God enters with his people. Every time you find covenant, you know what you find? Blood. Whenever God makes a covenant with his people, there's going to be the shedding of blood. God makes a promise with Noah in Genesis, there's blood. God makes a promise with Abraham in Genesis, there's blood. God makes a promise with Moses and the people of Israel in Exodus, there's blood. Every time God makes a covenant with his people, blood is flown. Blood is shed. Why? Part of that is so that the party that was coming into covenant with God would get the gravity and intensity and weight and seriousness of what he was entering into. The blood was a way of shouting, this is no small thing. You don't come into this lightly. This is very weighty to enter into a covenant with God. Because what it was saying was, if you don't keep the covenant, this is what will be required. Blood. If you don't keep your end of the deal, blood will be required. So in Exodus 24, God has gathered all the people of Israel, and he's making a covenant with them. And the people of Israel say, everything the Lord has said, we will do. And it's almost like Moses saying, are you sure? And they go, yep, everything the Lord says, we will do. And the next scene that you get is Moses sprinkling blood on the people. He just literally drops buckets of blood on them. And this blood sort of soaks them, and what it shouts is, this is what will be required if you do not keep this covenant. And of course, as you keep reading the story, you find they haven't. They've broken their vows. They have not kept their covenant. They've dishonored this arrangement, this relationship they've entered to God with. But here's the beautiful, marvelous thing of the gospel. They've broken their vows, yet it's Jesus' blood that will be shed. They've violated the covenant, yet it will be he who needs to die. Blood will be required, but his will be shed for them. He will die in their place. At communion, Jesus is saying, I'm inaugurating a new covenant, and it should be your blood that flows, but this is my blood given for you, drink this, remembering me. There's now a new way to relate to God, and it will be coming because I will bear his judgment, and I will be killed, and my blood will pour, 
so that we can be okay again. And that's what happens every time you come to the table. Jesus invites you to hit this table and he offers you himself. And every time you come, you're renewed again in covenant. You're renewed again in relationship. It's sort of like marriage. In marriage, we have one ceremony that kicks the whole thing off. But then, do you know biblically how we renew our covenant? It's through the man and the woman becoming one flesh. Biblically, every time a man and woman come together and become one flesh and have physical union, they're renewing their covenant. Every time a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, come together in physical union, it's saying, these are my vows again. These are my commitments again. Communion is the same way towards God. We've entered into covenant with Him, and when we do, we get baptized, and then we stay in covenant with Him, and are renewed every time we come to this table. Renewed in our relationship with Him. Renewed in His vows towards us, and our vows towards Him. This is the beauty of Jesus' table. It is no small thing that happens when you take the bread and you take the cup. You are taking Jesus, offering himself, renewing, forging a new covenant, renewing it each week with you through his body and blood. It is not a pastor. It's not Seven Mile Road. It's not a Jay that invites you to the table. Jesus Christ calls you to communion and he offers himself. We come to the table, he offers himself, but he also qualifies us for the table. Jesus not only offers himself at the table, he qualifies us for the table. Right? Remember who's sitting with Jesus at that first meal. It's Peter who will deny him. It's ten others who will abandon him. Right? These are sinners that he's having this meal with. And so it is with us. We don't come to communion based on our righteousness. It's a meal Jesus is willing to have with sinners. And so he calls us based on his. You don't come to communion. This is the game I played with myself for so many years. Each week as I'm getting ready on Sundays, I'd sit there and think, did I have a good enough week this week to come to the table? And I'd sort of sort through the week, and if I had a good enough week, then I could come. I've got it backwards. The question is not, was I good enough this week? The question was, is Jesus still good this week? Is his righteousness still enough this week? Is his perfection still enough this week? If I haven't done what was required, has he still done what was required for me this week? Can I come not on the basis of my merit or worth, but on his, on, on his righteousness? Does his righteousness still clothe me this week? We come because he is worthy. None of us, hear me, none of us bring a worthy week to the table. But we come to a worthy Christ who qualifies us for the table. That's not to downplay or diminish what God says in 1 Corinthians 11 about examining yourself. Right? So, so don't come lightly because the Bible does say examine yourself. Let a man examine himself before he comes and takes the body and the blood, so that he does not eat and drink judgment on himself. Examine yourself. Make sure that you are in right relationship with God. This meal will be of no use to you. Instead, it will be an offense 
if it is not taken with a right relationship with God. If you have not come to repentant faith in Christ, you don't come. You don't find single people wearing a ring on the fourth finger of their left hand. Right? Because it doesn't make sense. You don't take the sign unless you're in the relationship. And so examine yourself that you are right with God. And also examine yourself that you are in right relationship with brother and sister. The examination is not just Godward, but outward. Are you in right relationship with brothers and sisters in this church? Are you forgiven and being forgiven? Are you extending grace? Are you in right relationship? Are you working towards reconciliation? Because we come to his one body as one body. So examine yourself, but come. Right? Some of us come to the table, at least we have casually. Others of us come condemned and both need to be corrected and say we come on repentant faith in Jesus Christ. He qualifies us for the table. We come in his righteousness, in his merit. Jesus invites us to the table. He offers us himself. He qualifies us for the table. He also unites us around the table. He offers himself at the table. He qualifies us for the table. He unites us around the table. Remember who Jesus is having this meal with in this upper room. For thousands of years, you had the Passover with your family. Dad, mom, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, you came together. This was very much a family affair. Yet how unconventional is it that Jesus calls 12 men to come away from their families to have a meal with him on that night. And it's because Jesus is inaugurating an entirely new way of being related to one another. He's going to show them that there is now a relationship that runs even deeper than blood. Through this meal, Jesus is going to show us there is now a set of relationships for you that is deeper than the ones you were born to. That the person who has faith in Christ is more related to you than your own mother or father if they do not know Christ. It's an entirely new paradigm because Jesus unites us around this table and the blood that connects does not flow through our veins but fell from His. He unites us around this table and we're connected to one another. We're united now with God, remember all that covenant talk, but we're also united with one another. When we come to communion, it's not just an eye towards God. This is not a private meal that you have with God. This is a family meal. You don't sit at the Thanksgiving table with 50 sides with just yourself. You sit with your family. So this is a meal we have as a family. God is our Father, brothers and sisters with one another. I'll give you a simple, silly, really silly, stupid example of how I love this playing out already here. We've been worshiping now 10 weeks, or, or something like that. I don't know if it's 10. But every week, Simi plays the guitar. You know what's been really, and again, this is really silly and stupid and small, but you know what's really sweet? Is Simi's never had to stop playing to get the bread in the cup. Because somebody is thoughtful enough to bring it to him. It's really small, and now I'm not trying to make it weird, so keep doing that because it's a good thing, but that's the point. This is not just you and God. This has an eye towards brother and sister. 
This is a family meal. We come together. My brother is vitally important to me when I come to communion. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, we break one bread, remembering that we are one body. Right? We don't order 30 pieces of bread and give you a personal piece. We take one loaf and we rip out pieces for each of you because we are one body coming to his one body. Jesus unites us around this table. He offers himself at the table. He qualifies us for the table. He unites us around the table. And last thing, very quickly, through this table, he points us to another table. When we come to the table, every time, Jesus points us to one yet to come. Listen to what he says in verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Every time you come to Jesus' table on earth, you are pointed to Jesus' table in the kingdom to come. There was a church that adopted this practice that the Jews used to practice. So it was said that Jewish people would come once a year to celebrate the Passover. And that a tradition grew among some of them, which is they would eat the Passover meal and at the end they would raise their cups and they would say, next time in Jerusalem. Because the longing of their heart was, oh, we long to be in our land enjoying this meal where God made his promises to us. A church heard that and they adopted it some for themselves, which is after the communion, they would lift their hearts and together say, next time with Christ. Every week, next time with Christ. This is our heart when we come. We come this Sunday and we'll take the bread and the cup, but the longing of our heart is, Lord, by next Sunday, let it be that we're eating and drinking with you. And if we're still on the earth... The next Sunday will come and we'll say, Lord Jesus, next time let this meal be with Christ. Every time you come, there's a longing in your heart saying, I cannot wait for the day when you make all things new, when we will eat and drink forever at your table with Jesus at the head and we brothers and sisters together forever with him. We come to communion and Jesus invites us and he offers himself and he qualifies us for this table and he unites us around this table and he points us to a table yet to come. When we come to communion, this is not just a memorial. So this is not like putting flowers by a gravestone where we remember someone we loved who passed away. This is a meal we eat with the living Lord Jesus Christ. So we come with repentant and humble hearts, but we come with glad, forgiven hearts. We're sinners, but we're sinners forgiven by Christ who have been invited to eat and drink with the living Lord Jesus till the day we will eat and drink forever with him. So then come to Jesus' table. Repent of your sins. Turn in faith to him who has broken his body and shed his blood for you. And come eat this meal prepared for you.